I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The FT more bank branches to close. Is this the thin end of the wedge for branch-based banking? Junior ISAs celebrate their third birthday, but what will happen to child trust funds? And why do investors hate Europe so much? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with the help of my FT colleague Emma Dunkley... Hello. And two special studio guests, Sarah Pennells of consumer website SavvyWoman.co.uk. Hello. And John Ingram, a manager on JP Morgan's Europe Dynamic X UK fund. Hello. This week, Lloyd's said it would close another 200 branches, resulting in the possible loss of over 9,000 jobs. The UK's biggest banking group by market share said that its customers increasingly want multi-channel banking and that it will invest heavily in new IT, particularly around mobile banking. The subject of branch closures is of course extremely sensitive. Lloyd's was at pains to stress that most of the closures will fall in urban areas where there is lots of duplication and that it would try to avoid closing the so-called last bank in town. But consumer groups have nevertheless expressed concerns, and so have retailers, fearing that the loss of banks on the high street will affect footfall in shops as well. Emma Dunkley, until recently of The Money Parish and now retail banking correspondent at the Financial Times, is here with more. Emma, welcome back. The only time I go into a bank branch these days is when it's raining and I don't want to get wet while I use the cash machine outside. Is that fairly typical? Yes, it does seem to be the trend at the moment. There's definitely a reduction in the footfall into branches. Uh, statistics from the British Bankers Association shows that footfall is declining by about 10% per annum. And the volume of calls into call centres is also falling off. So that went down by about a quarter last year. And at the same time, uh, the number of people using mobile applications in order to access banking services actually uh, doubled last year, according to BBA figures. So this definitely seems to be the direction... Um, of things and Lloyd's has really latched on to that as have all the other major UK banks largely because they have to they're facing competition from other new digital startups that are threatening their presence with um, faster more efficient services 
Lloyds reported yesterday that it expects the number of visits to branches to half over the next three years. And as a result, it expects half of transactions will be handled digitally or via self-service over the next three years. And as a result, it announced yesterday a number of branch closures and ways it will improve its digital services to facilitate this. Okay, well, you mentioned the the online sort of improvements there. What sort of things can we expect there? Because, of course, banks have been criticised in the past for their archaic IT and the sort of regular outages on mobile banking in particular. Yeah, so we can expect that there will perhaps be fewer branch staff when you walk in. However, those branch staff will be more digitally able and, um, dare I say, more skilled with um, helping out the number of services. So one thing Lloyd's mentioned yesterday is they also are keen on um, reducing the time it takes to use their services. So a mortgage application will take five days instead of 25 days. So you'll see processes speeded up in that sense. Also be a more um, interactive experience when you walk into a branch. So there's talk of having iPads, for example, which will project uh, an advisor from one end um, and you can go in and talk to that iPad perhaps if there's there's a specialist base somewhere else. Um, And another initiative other banks are, are looking at is something called Digital Eagles, a term coined by Barclays, whereby they've trained up a lot of staff to help out with the less digitally savvy people as they enter branches to help them access these facilities. You mentioned Barclays there. I mean, is this something that other banks are likely to do? I mean, are we likely to see more branch closures from the other major high street banks? Yes, it is uh, likely that other banks will move in this direction as well. Um, Research by a consultancy firm called CACI showed that there's about 8,000 branches among the big six banks in the UK, which is uh, absolutely massive and perhaps a bit excessive because they predict that you only need about 800 branches in the UK to service um, 80% of savers. And actually, uh, Deutsche Bank has gone a step further and said they think in 10 years' time we only need 500 branches. So it's definitely um, the way of things to come. On top of that, it generates sufficient profit benefits for banks to sell off all these uh, properties as assets and uh, will ultimately perhaps um, be a boost to shareholders. Well, that leads us neatly on to my final question, which is um, obviously 25% of Lloyd's still owned by the uh, by the government, already sold some shares. Was there any word in these results on when we can perhaps expect the remainder of the uh, government's stake to be sold and indeed uh, when the bank might start paying dividends to its ordinary shareholders again? The Lloyd's management alluded to dividend payments insofar as they... um, reiterated former statement that they're in ongoing discussions with the regulators as to when they can restart the dividend payment. Um, Analysts are suggesting that there'll be an announcement at the start of next year with regard to the payment of a a dividend for the full year of 2014 and that it will be a symbolic figure of say 1p um, largely to show that they are starting to repay dividends but just at a very low level and with regards to selling off the remainder of um, the Lloyd's stake. There was no mention of that yesterday, but again, um, analysts are suggesting that it will now be a case of if there is a retail offer, it will happen after the election, but there could be an institutional offer before the election. Thanks very much, Emma. And we'll be talking more about banks, European ones this time, in just a few minutes. And in this weekend's FT Money, fund manager Terry Smith explains why he would never buy shares in a bank. First, though, let's look at saving and investing for children. Way back in 2005, Gordon Brown set up the Child Trust Fund, a tax-free scheme designed to encourage particularly less well-off families to save for their children. 
Because the government of the day had abolished Tory boom and bust, or so it thought, it felt flush enough to seed the funds with an initial £250. If parents didn't open a child trust fund account, the government did so for them. Fast forward to 2011, and the £250 government contribution was considered money the country could no longer afford. The CTF regime was closed to new joiners, and three years ago this week, the Junior ISA was launched. At the end of 2013, the government said that CTFs could be transferred into Junior ISAs from April 2015. But why would you? What's the difference between the two products? And is one regime better or worse than the other? Joining me now is Sarah Pennells, a personal finance journalist who runs the website SavvyWoman.co.uk. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Now that you've just done a survey of over a thousand parents which found pretty widespread confusion about um, junior ISAs, even though it's three years since they actually launched, what were the main findings? Yes, as you say, we found that parents are quite confused about the the basic rules on junior ISAs and in particular on who can have one. In our research, we found almost half of parents, 49%, thought that all children can have a junior ISA, which isn't the case. Now, when it comes to the second question, which was how much can you pay into one or are there any limits? Most parents actually did know about 55% knew there were some limits. Around one in 10 thought there were no limits, but about a third of parents that we asked just weren't sure of the rules at all. And I was quite surprised that those figures were so high. In terms of the differences and the similarities between the two, I mean, first of all, what are the common features? Both of these regimes are running in parallel at the moment and will continue to do so uh, after April next year. Well, basically, child trust funds and junior ISAs are designed to be tax-free or tax-efficient ways for you to either save or invest for your child. So although they are different products, they have the same limits of currently £4,000 that you can pay into one in each year. And also the money that your child has saved or invested for them is locked away until they're 18. So those are broadly um, the same features that they have, but they do have some differences as well. And what about those differences? And which do you think is better? I think for those parents who have never saved before and who got their £250 voucher or who even got a second voucher for £250 when their child was seven, which is what happened with child trust funds, they may well say, well, this is actually a much better idea because I think they did give parents a good kickstart if they had never thought of saving or investing before. And they did actually um, invest the money in stocks and shares if the parent didn't make an active decision. But if you look at junior ISAs, they generally have, uh, the investment ones have access to a much wider range of funds. The costs and charges are much more competitive on the whole. And if you look at the cash version, generally they'll pay a higher interest rate. It's not always the case, but some of the providers definitely have a nice high interest rate for junior cash ISAs. And then the child trust funds are sort of forgotten somewhere paying a lower rate. Now, you mentioned there that uh, a lot of the money that went into child trust funds went into investment-like products, primarily funds. Has that also been the case for junior ISAs? Because it's not the case in adult ISAs, is it? It's not the case in junior ISAs either. And I thought this was quite interesting that in terms of the number of junior ISAs opened, I think it's about uh, two thirds of cash and a third stocks and shares. But actually, in terms of the amount of money that's been put in, it's a higher amount of money has been put into the cash junior ISAs. So there's a definite skew from parents who either aren't sure what to invest in, which I suspect is the case, 
or just maybe feel too worried about the idea of money that they see as being for their child losing value. And I think that's a real shame because although you've you've got to be comfortable with any kind of risk before you invest, these are designed to be long-term accounts. And finally, you mentioned that the money passes to the child at the at the age of 18. Now, I'm, I'm quite worried about that in, in the case of one of my children because I'm pretty sure it will end up being spent on some tattoos and a motorbike. <laughs> um, and given that many adults don't use their full ISA allowance each year, is there a case for saying, actually, you should open an adult ISA on behalf of your child and then you can control when they get the money and, and also potentially what they do with it? Well, the thing about uh, these accounts is that when your child reaches 18, although they can take control of it, and that's what the rules say, the money does automatically roll over into an ISA unless you take the money out. I mean, I think it's a difficult one because, uh, I mean, uh, children age 18, if they are children, they can do a lot of things. Um, and so some would say, well, they ought to be able to take control of their own money. And when the Child Trust Fund was introduced, the whole point was it was supposed to be part of a financial education in schools. Of course, that didn't really happen at the time. And so I think what we're going to find now is that children haven't necessarily had that kind of education in schools. As you say, they may get this pot of money at 18 and decide to go and blow it on, you know, shiny things or tattoos or whatever. But I think it's more about hopefully talking to your child about money as they're getting older and telling them what they can do with it, which could be deposit for a house or it could be something, you know, paying off student fees. Thanks very much, Sarah. There's more about the pros and cons of junior ISAs and child trust funds in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is, of course, part of the weekend FT, which is widely available on Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. And we're always keen to hear your views. What is your experience of saving for children, either in a child trust fund or a junior ISA? Let us know your views. Our email address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Last weekend, the European Central Bank issued the results of its asset quality review, better known as the bank stress tests. These are designed to examine how banks would cope with another financial crisis, and they found that seven years after the near collapse of the world's banking system, around 25 European banks are still not really strong enough to withstand serious turbulence. And a couple of weeks before that, when markets fell heavily, there was one region that sold off more than most, Europe. International investors have a real downer on Europe at the moment. According to a regular Bank of America survey, just 16% of fund managers think the Eurozone's economy will grow this year, and only 4% are overweight to Europe compared to other regions in the world. Now, the ECB cannot create new money to buy bonds, as the British and American central banks have done, and even if it could, the Germans probably wouldn't let it, because they believe that weaker countries in the Eurozone should wear the hair shirt of austerity and improve their productivity first. Meanwhile, investors are increasingly worried about deflation and slowing economic growth. It all adds up to a pretty bleak picture. But is it really that bad? John Ingram, a manager on the JP Morgan Europe Dynamic X UK fund, joins me now. John, welcome to the programme. First of all, can you explain why investors are so concerned about deflation in the Eurozone? I think the important thing to understand or even differentiate is between deflation and negative inflation. So investors are seeing inflation rates in Europe dropping perilously close to zero. They've come down from around the 2% that's targeted to about 0.4%. 
Now, deflation is not necessarily that number dropping less than zero. Deflation, which undoubtedly is bad, is a mindset. Deflation is a mindset whereby consumers are so convinced prices of goods are going to fall, they actually stop purchasing. So if the new iPhone comes out or the new iPad comes out, rather than rushing out to buy it, consumers defer that purchase and think, I'll buy it in six months' time when it's much cheaper. Now, why we're not concerned about the negative inflation or the the falling inflation numbers that are coming out is actually if you break it down into what's causing that inflation number to fall. And the negative component of it is food. Now, food, as we all well know, is not a purchase that we can defer. Actually, if food prices are becoming cheaper, we as consumers typically have more money to spend on other other goods and services. So that's why it's a number that we're watching, obviously, and consumers should watch, but it's not something that actually we think will have an impact on, on the earnings of European companies. So by extension, you would reject the comparison we're hearing increasingly frequently now, which is with um, Japan, which of course got itself into a sort of long uh, multi-year deflationary spiral. Yeah, absolutely. And the mindset there of Japanese people was fundamentally shifted and that did cause problems. So absolutely, what we had in Japan was, I mean, a number of problems. Um, If you go back starting really right in the 80s, where stock market valuations reached ludicrous levels, the likes of which we certainly have never seen in Europe. But then right through to the policy mistakes that were made through the 90s in terms of never really fixing the banks. And you did end up with a situation absolutely where you had deflation. I think we're an awful long way away from that in Europe. I say the fact that food's getting cheaper and the fuel bill at the pumps is getting cheaper, that's not actually a bad thing as far as we're concerned. Okay, now setting aside the deflation or negative inflation debate, um, it's beyond question that uh, economic growth in, in Europe is no great shakes. But what about companies. I mean, there are still lots of companies in Europe that are presumably uh, very large, very robust financially and sell products all over the world. Has this sort of economic slowdown at home affected them? When we look at all the media commentary around Europe, it seems that the vast majority of it is dedicated towards GDP or lack of GDP growth. Most of our listeners today are obviously would be concerned about their, their ICEs, their savings products and where they might want to invest going forwards. And so the first point really is to say that GDP actually is a very, very poor predictor of stock market performance. And it might interest listeners to know it's actually a negative predictor of stock market performance. If you actually happen to buy stock markets with the lowest GDP, you actually tend to outperform um, those investors who buy the hottest region with the highest GDP. Now, that's over sort of 50 or 60 years of data. But uh, again, to, to bring it maybe closer to home, if you look at the last three years or so, It's been fairly hard not to make money on investing in certain asset classes, whether it's property, equities or fixed income. The one exception to that, of course, is emerging market equities with undoubtedly the highest GDP uh, globally, but actually the worst performance. And that's actually something you see quite commonly. Okay, now, arguably a much better predictor of subsequent stock market returns is valuations, i.e. if you buy stuff when it's cheap, you have a much better chance of making a decent profit on it. What are European company valuations like at the moment relative to, say, US or emerging markets? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Valuations will always be the best predictor of long-term performance in any asset class. Um, you think back to the, the tech boom you know, in 99, those investors who bought in then when companies were the most expensive they'd pretty much ever been obviously had a very disappointing experience 
people who were brave enough to buy in March of 2009, when companies were as cheap as they'd been for 30 or 40 years, have had have doubled their money pretty much. A measure of valuation that we look at is is something called the Schiller PE. This is really a measure of what value am I paying for the company today versus the normal earnings for that company. So what multiple am I paying of the profits that that company's made each and every one of the last 10 years as really a reflection of uh, its normal earnings power. And if you look at European companies, they're about a 40% discount to the American companies. Now, that's also from a starting point that American companies have record earnings, record margins, record sales. And you've really got to predict that that continues growing faster and faster, whereas European companies are a long way off their earnings potential. These are companies earning uh, you know, a good deal less than they earned in 2007. And when you look at some of the fantastic brands uh, that Europe has, we see no reason why those earnings levels won't return uh, to prior levels. And therefore, again, that will take markets higher. John, thanks very much for joining us. There's more on the Eurozone's woes and attractions in this weekend's FT Money. We also look at whether you need a financial advisor, and if you do, how should you go about choosing one? The Money Show will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, Emma, and our special guests, Sarah Pennells and John Ingram. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.